And open your Bible, if you will, to James chapter 4. James, James chapter 4. I wanted to start today by saying that freedom of speech, which we enjoy or tolerate, it depends on who's speaking, uh, freedom of speech comes with a high price. Uh, some media sources use attention-grabbing titles for news articles that end up having nothing to do with the facts and sometimes the complete opposite of what they ought to be reporting. James doesn't do that. Uh, James builds the content of his letter to the scattered 12 tribes with facts about what genuine salvation and genuine faith looks like. And going backwards, he speaks of loving the world rather than loving God, and in, in doing that, placing oneself as an enemy of God. He speaks of earthly wisdom rather than heavenly wisdom. He speaks of the tongue being out of control for some, a belief that is no better than demons, a dead faith, breaking the law at least in one point and therefore being lawbreakers, showing preferential treatment, hearing the word but not being doers of it. And in each of these topics, there's a spiritual dynamic that can affect a genuine believer, but he seems to be driving home the point of test yourself to make sure that your faith is biblically genuine. Uh, but each of these th things can also affect a genuine believer. Uh, he uses strong words and phrases to motivate um, his reader to test their faith. Words like an enemy of God. God resists or sets up his military arsenal against those who love the world. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Um, words associated with repentance like mourn and weep. And then things like God gives more grace or grace to the humble. I don't put a lot of emphasis on titles and messages, but hopefully they don't deceive like some of the things that we see in the media these days. Um, in James chapter 4, verse 5 through 10, James emphasizes the importance of humility in a genuine relationship with God. And at first I thought, how about humility displayed? And I thought, well, no, that, they, that kind of works against each other. If you have humility, you're not trying to display it. Um, that would be a little bit proud, but humility demonstrated. Let's read verses 5 through 10 together, and then we're going to be focusing especially on verses 7 through 10. He says in verse 5, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's placed, uh, that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And we mentioned this last week, but it's significant enough I wanted to do it again. He gives more grace, grace or sufficient grace or grace that's greater than all of our sin. And that grace is given to the humble. That's what he's chosen to limit himself to doing, great, giving grace to the humble. Grace being, by definition, a couple of dictionaries, God's divine influence or benefit or favor upon the heart. The kindness of God, which results in blessings and credit and favor and a gift. 
Um, grace that justifies believers before holy God. Grace that provides believers access to God and fellowship with Him. Grace that grants believers immeasurable spiritual riches. Grace that helps believers in every need. Grace that's the reason behind every deliverance that we receive. By grace, we've been saved and preserved and comforted and encouraged and strengthened. And I've got verses that go with each one of those. If you'd like them, I'd be glad to take a picture of it and send it to you. God's grace, though, is a grace that is not earned. It is not earned. If it could be, it wouldn't be grace. Um, Not only that, mankind's sinful condition causes us not to want to earn God's favor, according to Romans chapter 3. James reminds his readers that God distributes his saving grace to the humble. However, there are some graces from God that are given to all mankind. And I wanted to just mention this. Jesus spoke of the sun and the rain that rises and falls on the just and the unjust. That's the goodness and the grace of God. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas uh, are in Lystra and they heal a man. And instantly the people around them began to bow down to them and say, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and Paul used that opportunity to explain the God and the gospel, and he mentioned as well some general graces from God. In verse 17 of Acts 14, he says, God did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with fruit, food, and gladness. The idea that some grace, some general graces were given to all of mankind. And mankind should be thankful, and I think it's a huge sin before God that those who aren't thankful to the Lord uh, aren't thankful to the things that He's given to us. But we recognize that a specific grace comes to those who believe and follow Him. It's a gift of God. By grace are you saved through faith. Second uh, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and we recognize that it's from God. He says in James chapter 4 then, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Or therefore, based on these truths, the, the truths from verse 6, which would be God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he gives what are ten imperatives, ten verbs that are strong imperative verbs. Um, but he says to submit, to place oneself under or rank under someone to be subject to. And it's done in a verb, and I want to explain this because it's significant. It's done in a verb that communicates a single action in the past. And so James is telling his readers, these 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, you need to have submitted to God an activity that's done in the past, and it's called a reflexive verb. It's something that I myself do. And so I, Jerry, have submitted to God. April 8th, 1980 for me, and then many times along the way, but that was the initial uh, starting point. An example would be something like this. Janie drove herself to church this morning. She did it, and she received the activity of that which was done. It wasn't Janie's mom drove her to church or someone else drove her to church. Janie drove herself to church this morning. And James is telling his readers, submit yourselves to God. You are the one who is responsible for doing this. This is a submit yourselves. You do it, not someone else. They can't do it for you. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of man. It's not because you love your family members. It's something that they must do. And interestingly, it's not even God who does this 
either. He, he, he requires of us that we submit ourselves to him. Now, we recognize that if he doesn't open our hearts and our minds and enlighten us, we wouldn't do that. Um, Romans chapter 3 tells us that. But uh, James is saying that's our task. Um, but I thought, you might say, no one seeks for God. No one seeks after God. True statement in Romans chapter 3. Um, so how can God's word demand these individuals to submit themselves to God, an activity that they must do? I think, this is me, this is Jerry, I think the difference is the word of God which is alive and life-giving along with the spirit of God who is alive and life-giving is being spoken, enabling, if you will, the hearers to respond appropriately or negatively to that which is being spoken. God's word, I'm quoting now, is clear that he sovereignly chooses men for salvation in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, he predestined them to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself according to the kind intention of his will, that those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of God. However, it's just as clear that the Lord commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, and that not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, and God so loved the world, and that he graciously desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, First Timothy chapter chapter 2 verse 4. So we find invitations and that's the end of the quote. Now this is me. So we find invitations in scripture like if you're thirsty come to the water. Isaiah 55 verse 1 with Jesus echoing those words in John chapter 7. If you're thirsty come to the water. Uh, I'm the water of life. Jesus saying come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden. Matthew chapter 11 or Revelation chapter 22. The spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And so they seem to be two truths that contradict each other. And for us to be able to sort that out in our mind, we have human limitations. And I've heard it said, and I like the illustration, that it's two, it could be visualized as two railroad tracks that both lead to the throne room of God. God is the one who must do the work in our hearts. And yet at the same time, we find passages like James where he says, submit, you yourself submit to God an activity that should have happened in the past. So we find both of those there. It's not as neatly packaged as what some might want it to be. And for me to overemphasize one aspect of what God does and who he is in salvation and to underestimate or underemphasize the other seems to be an imbalance. But to do the same over here and underemphasize this over here seems to be an imbalance as well. It's not as easily um, discernible as some would have it be. There is, and I read a few articles on this, if you uh, aren't afraid to read a Methodist preacher, uh, read about what they call prevenient grace, prevenient grace. And what that is, according to their explanation, is it's, it's God's grace opening the hearts and the eyes and the minds of those, enabling them to respond in a way that's pleasing to him. See if that doesn't uh, cause you to wrestle a little bit with some of your theology. James chapter 4, verse 7 uh, James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Submit to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I want you to notice who they were to submit themselves to. It's to God. It's not to a preacher, not to a husband, not to a parent, not to a wife. Submit yourselves to God. 
There are instructions and situations in Scripture where we find um, submission to other human beings, but that isn't what this is. Submit, submit yourselves one to another, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives to husbands, Ephesians 5 as well. Children to parents, employers to employees, slaves to master, governing authorities, husbands to, wife, uh, husbands to Christ. But here James speaks in this verb tense of a single action of submitting to God that should have happened in the past, and, it, and if it hasn't, that's what needs to happen. A response that's reasonable considering who he is and the position and the power he has. And if James's hearers refuse, refuse to submit themselves to God, they can count on God resisting them, setting up his military arsenal against them. And so it comes with a high price. We know this spiritual principle of submitting to God is true for, and good for believers also. I think James is saying, though, you who name the name of Christ, test yourselves to see if your faith is a genuine one and that you have sub- indeed submitted yourselves to God. But we know it's true for believers as well. James seems to be speaking to those who name the name of Christ but lack the spiritual dynamic that accompanies faith in Christ. For the believer, it's expressed in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as well as other places in Scripture where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So as I recognize Christ dying on the cross for me, I call upon the name of the Lord, I'm forgiven of my sins. It's a reasonable thing for me to say, God, here I am. I am your living sacrifice. You do with me whatever it is that you want to, be, to, to have done with me and to use me in whatever way that you desire. Similar but different, again, nowhere in the New Testament is the believer described as an enemy of God, as someone who God resists. Um, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he says, resist the devil, and and he will flee from you. Stand against him or oppose him, the devil, the slanderer, the liar, the accuser. A similar command, though, with a different emphasis. Similar because it's something that someone must do. And the verb tense is about the same with just a little bit of a twist. So we'd expect to find that um, because of the command that's given here. It's also an imperative verb, something that someone does. But this tense doesn't only emphasize one's actions. It emphasizes that that because I've submitted myself to God, it's my reasonable response to resist the devil. So this resistance the devil is based upon I did that one time submit myself to God in the past as well speaking of this verb tense um, this is what it means the action that the verb is describing is the result of something that happened in the past and it gives rise to the action that you're commanded to take in the present an example would be because I said I do to my wife, I should be faithful and love her and be selfless for, to my wife my entire life. Because someone submitted themselves to God, it's reasonable based upon that action that they also resist the devil. It gives us the power uh, and, the, and the command to do that. We could say if someone doesn't submit to God, they won't resist the devil. And that's what we find in James. We find them messing up with their tongue and their wisdom and their preferential treatment. And James is saying, perhaps you haven't resisted, excuse me, perhaps you haven't submitted yourself to God. Genuinely check that out to see. No submission to God, no resisting the devil. No resisting the devil, he won't flee from us. No submission to God, the devil doesn't flee. 
That's true for those outside of Christ. Really, we find commands as well for believers to resist the devil, and I want to read a couple of them here in a second. But the result of resisting the devil, because I've submitted to God, he will flee from me, he escapes me, he flees me, he runs from me. Why? Because of who Jerry is? No, because of the spiritual dynamic that God has placed in in motion that we've submitted ourselves to him, and it's through him that we have that victory, because you've submitted yourself to God. I'm quoting, the devil can be defeated as powerful as he is, even those held in his power, 1 John chapter 5 verse 19 speaks of this, can be triumphant. The Lord Jesus defeated him at his temptation and at the cross and left him vulnerable. He cannot hold a sinner against the sinner's will. He can't even lead a believer into sin without the consent of that believer's will. When confronted and resisted with the truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he flees. As I submit myself to God in the past and now I resist the devil, he will flee from me. Now I might have to do it in in an hour, and I might have to do it an hour later, Um, But he will flee. After salvation, he comes again and again through the world's system, working on the flesh. But he can be defeated repeatedly by the believer who has the sword of the spirit and the rest of the armor of God as well. You might think, well, that's kind of arrogant that you can resist Satan, um, who is so powerful in this world. It's not arrogant. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I have that ability. And we have to engage faith and obedience to, to, to overcome, um, but we have that ability in the Lord. It isn't the believer's doing. It's in the strength of their own flesh or their own will. It's the enabling spiritual power of the gospel. And James's way of addressing some of the readers that he's speaking to isn't a God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, he would include that as well, but he doesn't stop there. What he does, though, is he says, um, you need to be spiritually broken and humble before holy God. You love the world. You've set yourself up as enemies against God. Your wisdom is earthly. Your tongue is out of control. Your belief is not any better than that of the demons. Your faith is dead. You've broken the law. You show preferential treatment, and you hear the word, um, but you don't do it. And his response to that we find in verse 8 and 9, so cleanse your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned, to, be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Seven imperatives because of the pride that they were walking in, likely, possibly, because they had never genuinely submitted themselves to God. And so they were falling uh, in a lot of different areas. Seven impaired, six of which go back and hinge on submit yourself to God. You say, well, what about the seventh? Well, the seventh is hinged on the other six, um, which, is, which is let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy and to gloom. And he isn't saying don't have an enjoyable time in life. He's saying if you're an unrepentant sinner who isn't displaying, uh, who isn't displaying the fruit of the Spirit because there isn't a genuine salvation, then your laughter needs to be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. There needs to be a genuine repentance. Again, in a similar thought, in a, though a different way, for the believer, the New Testament tells us to resist the devil. We find in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to the world. First Peter says, be sober-minded, chapter 5, verse 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom, who, whom he may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. How do we resist him? In my willpower? No. Resist him firm in your faith, which is the gospel. Uh, Ephesians 4 says, give no opportunity to the devil for the believer. Ephesians 6 for the believer says, put on 
on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So not only do I have the ability to recognize them, but I have the wherewithal spiritually to stand against them. Why? Because way back here, I submitted myself to God. And so all of these things that are required hinge on this, my submission to God. And so have I genuinely submitted myself to God is the question that James seems to be begging of his readers. James then says, draw near to God, verse 8, and he will draw near to you. Same verb idea based on something that happened in the past. What was it? It was submit yourselves to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Drawing near to God is different than submitting myself to God. I'm drawing, literally, in a simplistic way, I'm drawing myself near to Daniel. I'm approaching Daniel. I could touch him if I, touch him, uh, if I wanted to. And so what James is saying is, because you've submitted yourself to God, now draw near to him. Draw near to him. So there are two different activities, though this one is based upon the reality of this one having had happened. Now, because a believer has submitted themselves to God and is resisting the devil, they draw near to God. Have intimate fellowship with and communion with the living, eternal, almighty God. That's not arrogance. It's the gospel. It's what God has opened up for us in his word. Paul expressed it this way, that I may know him, Philippians 3, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, now that's a little bit different, maybe, than a gospel that you want to believe. We want the benefits. We want the forgiveness of sin. We want the door open to heaven. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also says the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, and also become like him in his death. Might not want that part um, if that's what drawing near to God. <laughs> that's what drawing near to God means. Um, that's why James is. That's what James is trying to say. It isn't just give me the benefits of salvation, but none of the weightier things. Israel did that. Um, God would say through Isaiah to Israel, "This people draws near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. With their hearts, they are far from me." Isaiah twenty nine. We don't want that to be the commentary of us. We want our faith not only to be a submitted to God, but also a resisting the devil as well as a drawing near to him, draw near to God. He says in Jeremiah, the scripture, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Not just what are the benefits, not just what can I get from you, God, when you search for me with all your heart. Second Chronicles says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him, someone who is genuinely desiring to seek him. The eyes of the Lord are just always roving throughout the whole earth. Lone Jack Baptist, Sunday morning, today, his eyes are roving, seeing whose heart is genuinely turned towards him. And he has the wherewithal to be able to discern that. Hebrews 4 says, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. For you as a believer, because you've submitted to God, you're resisting the devil. How might we draw near to God? Very easy. A general answer. Get to know him according to who he says he is. How can I draw near to God? Hopefully that's your motive this morning in coming to church and singing to him and opening your Bible and reading it so that we can know more about him and what he wants and submit ourselves to him. Spend time with him in his word. 
Don't you find it interesting that the main way that God has chosen to communicate with us is through a book? And, and to say, I'm not a reader, therefore I don't consider God's word, that's not okay. Um, there are a lot of different ways that we can take in the word of God in our day, which didn't exist in times past. But on my day off, I can dial up Philippians and listen to the book of Philippians. You can listen to different messages. You can meditate on it. You can memorize it. Um, but I find it significant that he chooses his main method of choosing to um, communicate with us is through the word, uh, also through his spirit. For that purpose, it's the purpose of drawing near to him. And I know you know this, but I know also that it's important to say it and remind ourselves we could be here this morning opening God's word, genuinely desiring to understand what it has to say, and be drawing near to the Lord. But it is possible that some among us are here this morning, the Bible is open, they might even be considering it, and their heart is not intent towards drawing near to God. And, and we could look at the Pharisees as examples, or the Sadducees, um, we, could look at, we could look at Israel in the Old Testament, and so they wanted to know something of God, but it wasn't for the purpose of drawing near to Him. And James is saying, hey, you be careful that there's a genuineness in the faith that you have. Submit to God and then let all of these other dynamics, spiritual dynamics, take place in the way that they should. Another way to spend time with the Lord, to draw near to Him, is talking with Him. Um, the whole idea of, you know, I just find it awkward to pray. Well, just get over it. Um, he, he wants us to pray. Uh, he wants us to communicate with him. You don't find it awkward to talk to other people in your family. He's your creator for crying out loud. Um, Lord, you made me. Um, what is it that you want me to do? I don't have to get flowery and, and, and really um, verbose in the way I communicate with Lord. Is you know, Driving along the highway, Lord, are you kidding me? I have prayed that. Are you kidding me? And I've felt him say, nope. <laughs> draw near to God, and this will be the result. He will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the spiritual dynamic that he set in place. Resist the devil, draw near to God. Because you've submitted yourself to him, resist the devil, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It can happen when I'm reading his word, but it can also not happen when I'm reading his word. It isn't just a magical thing that I'm reading his word. It's a, God, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know what you want for me. I want to know if I should repent, whatever it might be. It can happen when I'm reading his word, when I'm praying, when I'm just walking through my day with a disposition to draw near to God. You don't have to be a preacher. You can be a carpenter. You can be a homemaker. Whatever it is that you do, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It can happen when we worship, and it can also not happen when others around me are worshiping because I'm not drawing near to God. I'm not considering who Christ is or what he's done for me or the eternity that he's given me, um, but others are, and they're genuinely worshiping, so it doesn't happen magically or because others do, then it just kind of wears off on me. Um, I draw near to him, and he draws near to me. The last imperative that we find in this text is in verse 10, where he says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves before or in the sight of the Lord, and He will exalt you. How do I do that? 
How do I humble myself? Anything practical on how I can humble myself before the Lord? What will that look like? And I think if we look at the context of where James is saying this, it gives us an answer. This is what humbling yourself before the Lord looks like. Submitting yourself to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, being genuine in your repentance and broken because of my spiritual state, cleansing my hand, purifying my heart, being wretched and mourning and weeping, just a repentance that's going on, and I am humbling myself before the Lord. And when that dynamic happens, Scripture says, James says, He, God, will exalt you. Jesus made that clear that whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, Matthew 23. He was in the midst of a group of people that exalted themselves in the eyes of others. Um, It's his task to exalt the believer. He gets to do it in his time. He gets to do it in his way. And so to say, if I were to say, I've humbled, I've genuinely tried to humble myself before the Lord, but he hasn't exalted me then I'm really probably not understanding the he gets to exalt me however he chooses, whenever he chooses. And I probably aren't seeing, I'm probably not seeing some of the things that he's already done for me as well. It wouldn't be appropriate to say, uh, I did that he, and he didn't exalt me. Um, I still have difficulties. Maybe you say that. I still have troubles. I thought that when I gave my life to Christ that everything was just going to fall into place. Can't find that one in Scripture. Um, we were reminded yesterday in the men's breakfast that in this life we will have troubles. And they're going to come that way. Um, he might not exalt you till the rapture. That's his choice, but he has exalted you. I'm going to let you know how. It, isn't it true? Uh, isn't, isn't that true of those who have been or will be martyred um, in his name as well? Did he not exalt them? Did he not exalt Isaiah who was sawn in two or the other prophets that wandered about in goatskins and sheepskins? Of course he exalted them. They just didn't get it in a way that they might have wanted it. And we might not get it that way as well. He might choose to exalt you while you're still alive. Like Joseph, after he experienced significant trouble and then he got catapulted up into Pharaoh's government, you might say, that's what I want. It's not yours to choose. He's the one who exalts. He gets to do it his time, his way. Um, For Joseph, he suffered some and later he was exalted even in the house of an unbeliever in a government that was a non-God-honoring government. Joseph was exalted for Isaiah or those in Hebrews chapter 11. Old Testament history tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two. There were others that lost their life as well. Did God not exalt them? I think he did, or he will uh, in another way as well. Listen to this. This is future. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who loved him. That sounds pretty exalted to me. That God has planned some things that I can't even imagine or think of. That just don't even come to my mind. Some things that God has planned for those who are his followers. He's exalting. That's future. Um, That sounds pretty exalted. This is present. Ephesians chapter 1. 
He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That sounds pretty exalted. He took Jerry, this Jerry that I know what he looked like when I look in the mirror, and he put me up on the same level um, with Jesus. Uh, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that sounds pretty exalted and so when I when I want to wallow in this misery that I've had and this lack of comfort and maybe the troubles that I'm experiencing, it's a good thing to remember who I am in the Lord and what God's already done for me. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That sounds pretty exalted. We have it in the future. We have the spiritual dynamic now, though we have to recognize it and believe it and walk in it. And so let's not put our eyes on all of the difficulties and troubles that we have around us. Don't ignore them. We've got to deal with them. But in this world, you will have tribulation. And in the tribulation that we have, we recognize God, as I humble myself before the Lord and draw near to him, he will draw near to me as well. In Jesus, we are exalted And there's still more to come that we can't even imagine. And I hope this morning as a believer, someone who has submitted their life to Christ, who did that one time submit yourselves to God and you recognize their spiritual life, I hope that's an encouraging word for you. That God is drawing near to you. He's exalted and will exalt you even more. He's given you everything that you need spiritually. And if you're here, like I think some of James's readers were, and you would say, you know, I don't know that I go all the way back to that submitting myself to God. Today would be the day to submit yourself to God. He's, he's the one, if there's a desire in your heart, he's the one that's placing that there. Let his word, that's a life-giving word, and his spirit, that's a life-giving spirit, do its work in your heart, and you respond with a yes, Lord, whatever it is that you would want. That's what I want as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. Thank you for James's hard words sometimes, and yet it hits us right where we are. And I pray, Father, that every single person in this place, from the elders to deacons to ministry leaders to worship leaders to people that are sitting in the pew, that we would all genuinely evaluate, have I believed genuinely on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if I have, are the fruit of genuine salvation apparent in my life? And if not, as James is encouraging his readers to do, may that just drive them back to, I need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and submit myself to God. Have your way, I pray, Lord, in the heart of every single person in this place. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.